So several weeks back, the Boyds invited the church over for an open house to see the completed project after many months of toil and preparation and setbacks. And it was a beautiful thing to behold. The, the design of that house, the way that it accents that, that hill up there, and to, to see the flow and the thought that went into the whole creation of it. And yet, there was one part of the house that wasn't showcased at all during the open house. No one ooed and awed at it. No one even probably thought about it the entire time. And yet, it is probably the most important, if not one of the most important parts of the entire house. And of course, I'm thinking of the cold, solid, hidden, concrete foundation that lies beneath it all. That's what the text we're in today is like. It's, it's the ge- genealogy. It's, it's the, the toledot. That's the Hebrew word. Remember Genesis? There are ten toledots. These are the generations of that kind of pass, pass the baton forward in the story. And today's primarily a list of names or of individual people and peoples. And it's easy for us to sometimes check out or even skip over these sections, but that would be a mistake. And especially so today, because this collective genealogy, what is often referred to as the table of nations, not only recounts the populating of the entire world after the flood, Remember, twice after the flood, God reaffirms the creation mandate to be fruitful and to multiply and fill. And so we see in the table of nations that that is happening by God's decree. It not only shows that, but it also gives us several names, several actors, several characters in the story of scripture and of redemption that we come back to time and time again for the rest of scripture. So this text is certainly not as straightforward as the one from Pastor DeSantos last week, but if we give ourselves to careful study, it will prove to be edifying, not just for us today, but for our understanding of Scripture entirely, like some more of a pour of a foundation. And so stick with me through it, and I will now read chapter 10 in its entirety. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togermal. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sapta, Ramah, and Raptica, Saptica, excuse me. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. Now he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel or Babylon, same word, Eric 
and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, Caslehim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaph Torm. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arkbasad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash, Arkbashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelah, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations and from these nations spread abroad on earth after the flood. The word of the Lord. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We know that it is all profitable and edifying. And I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. And you would instruct us in wisdom and truth and in a wonder of the gospel through this word. In Christ's name, amen. So there's a lot that could be extracted from the mine of chapter 10. But here's the path for our time today because we can't trace all the rabbit trails. I'm going to make some general comments about each of the three sections, the, the, the three sons. So the table of nations broken up into three genealogies of the three sons primarily. I'll make some comments. Then we'll end by seeing how the table of nations in chapter 10 of Genesis helps us understand what the gospel is. This helps us understand, and we'll see this later, what Jesus Christ came to accomplish, why God became a man and came to earth. So that's the plan. So the first section is the genealogy of, of Japheth. And this section is notably the shortest of the three sections. So we're, we're given seven of Japheth's sons and seven of his grandsons. 
It's by far the shortest, and, and that's likely because at the time of Moses' writing of Genesis, these are the people who, they had moved farthest away from Israel into modern-day Asia and Europe and into some of the surrounding islands, even over the sea. So Israel at that time did not interact with the genealogy of Shem, probably at all or very little. And so it's just kind of a passing abbreviated uh, section of this. In fact, the one name that we probably recognize the most, most here, which shows their distance from where Israel was, is Japheth's grandson, Tarshish. You guys remember Tarshish? If you'll recall, when Jonah was told by God to go to Nineveh, instead, he tried to go to Tarshish, which is about as far in the opposite direction as you could possibly go over a thousand miles. And so that just gives an idea that he didn't even, that's not where he went. He went to the port city to take a ship to go to Tarshish, which he did not make. So that, that gives an idea of the distance. <clears throat> However, as we saw last time, the, the blessing on the Japhethites. So remember, blessings and curses of Noah's sons last time. We saw that the blessing on the Japhethites, these, these Gentiles, as it were, is that they would be allowed to dwell in the tent of Shem, ultimately. And so there's a term in the description of the Japhethites in this section of there being a coastlands people. That term becomes really significant as the story unfolds, especially in the prophets. Significant for a vision of what God intends to accomplish in the world in his redemption. For instance, Isaiah 42, verses 10 and 12, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. And so that's drawing from the Japhethites here, that they were the coastlands people. Now we transition to the sons of Ham, which we find in verses 6 through 20. Uh, 20. And Ham, of course, is the one who betrayed his, his father. And, and while the curse that Noah pronounced was specifically on Canaan, so Ham sinned, but the curse was on Canaan, Ham's youngest son, we see here that his whole lineage became, in large measure, the mortal enemies of the people of God. We talked about how we live in a covenantal world for blessing or for curse. Our decisions today in God's providence will impact the generations to come. We see that. And these are the nations that they are presently engaging with in their actual lives, namely the, the Israelites. So this is the largest section because they know something of these people. It also gives an account of those peoples that have already enslaved them, namely Egypt, we see here, and the nations that will take them into captivity in the future, that they don't, don't know that yet, but we do, namely Babylon and Assyria. And there's one person in this section that, that towers above the rest, that Moses spends more time on him 
far and away than, than anybody else. And it's Ham's grandson, Nimrod. And as we encounter Nimrod, we are told that Nimrod was a, a mighty man. And this is the same term, if you'll remember back in Genesis 6, of the Nephilim. The Nephilim were a, a mysterious and mighty and wicked people. They were men of renown. And so that is what Nimrod is. Nimrod was an exceptionally mighty man. He was a, a new Nephilim, as it were. And indeed, verse 8 says that he was the first mighty man on the earth. So perhaps that could mean on the, the, the new world since the flood, or even mightier than the Nephilim. He was the mightiest, perhaps. So we're not, not sure, but... The point remains, this man stood alone in might in the ancient world. And it also says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter, so much so that his prowess and ability to get what he wanted when he set his face on it became legendary. It became proverbial even. Verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. But before the Lord here is, is not a compliment. This is not a, a positive connotation, even though that's how it lands initially in the English. It's better understood that he was a mighty hunter who set himself against the Lord or one that the Lord constantly kept his eye on, <laughs> perhaps. Many commentators also think that this hunting, so he was a mighty hunter, isn't talking about animals at all, but talking about peoples and places. He went after them, and, and that seems to make sense because the trophies of Nimrod, the mighty hunter, are, are not antlers and skins, but they are cities, and they are peoples. Nimrod, a mighty hunter, set himself against the Lord who, who in the flesh, seems to accomplish what he intends to accomplish. And, and his main and massive claim to fame is that he founded not just one, but several great cities and kingdoms in the ancient world, including the two great adversaries of Israel in the Old Testament, namely Babylon, so Babylon, Babylon, again, same, same word there, and Nineveh, which is the center of Assyria. So I'm going to reread verses 10 through 12 because it, it, it is so much that comes after in the rest of Scripture where it finds its, its genesis here in the work of, of Nimrod. The beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel or Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from that land, so that, that wasn't good enough to found Babylon, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great cities. Remember Jonah? It was a three days journey across the city of Nineveh that Nimrod founded. So this one man founds the kingdom of Babylon, then he goes and builds Nineveh. This man is an ancient Alexander, hunting and conquering everything in his sight. He was a mighty man. And you may have already connected this. I alluded to it. But, but Babylon and Assyria are the two kingdoms that ultimately destroy and then take into captivity 
Judah, and Israel. So that's, that's a big deal. He's the patriarch of Israel's oppression, as it were. Indeed, the name Nimrod means rebel. And he also serves as a warning to those who seek their own glory, who live their lives for building their own kingdom and their own name and lights, set themselves against God. He's a warning because that first kingdom, Babylon, that Nimrod finds, we not only see that in Genesis, but that name continues all the way to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And what is Nimrod's great trophy now there? And this isn't speaking about Babylon literally. It's using it figuratively, but the point remains, this was Nimrod's great achievement. What does it ultimately become? Revelation 18, 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. So Nimrod seemed great in his time. He had much respect, much power, much applause. But because he was against God, it only increased the greatness of his judgment and his fall. So we would do well to remember Nimrod when we are driven by our own greatness with no thoughts of the glory of God or the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But contrast Nimrod's vision of greatness and ambition. Remember, ambition is not a bad thing. Ambition is not a bad thing. The question is, what kingdom are you building? That's an important thing to remember. Notice his vision compared to what Christ tells his disciples in Matthew 20, 26. Christ says, And this is after they're arguing about who's the greatest of us. Who's the best? He says, you want to be great. Well, whoever would be great among you must be the servant of all. So it's not bad to desire to be great in the kingdom of Christ. We should desire to be great. The Lord says, that's good. So then you will certainly be the biggest servant and the most driven by love and compassion in your corner of the kingdom. Nimrod built Babylon. Our Lord says, if you gave a cup of cold water in my name, at the very end, you will prove to have been truly great in the kingdom. Let the hearer understand. Okay. One thing worth noting before we continue. So next week, we're going to be in the story of the Tower of of Babylon, the Tower of Babel that Nimrod spearheaded, where the peoples are scattered. So chapter 10 today, that's chapter... 11, but we're already seeing people scattered and, and multiple languages going out. And so just by way of chrono, uh, chronology, understand that chapter 11 is not going to come chronologically after chapter 10. Rather, this is giving us a bird's eye overview of the dispersion of the nations with the Tower of Babel happening within chapter 10 that 11 zooms in on. Kind of like Genesis 1, where we get the overview of creation, including man and woman. And then chapter 2, we zoom in to the creation of Genesis, or um, of Adam, and then the creation of of Eve. So just to get your your bearings. Okay, and then the text moves, so we're still um, in the line of Ham, to the line of Canaan. And this specific genealogy ends up being the most numerous. And, And that's because these were the nations that were 
inhabiting the land that God had promised to give to Israel. So these are the nations they will have to drive out of the land. And so this obviously is of immediate practical interest to Moses' audience, which was the people of Israel heading towards the promised land. And when we remember that it is the Canaanites that were cursed by Noah, having this specific list also gives clarity perhaps as as to why God has called them to make war on these specific peoples. He, He wasn't just randomly kicking people out of some land who was completely disconnected from the larger story. Rather, he was bringing both blessing upon his people and curses upon his enemies in the line of Canaan. And two notable places in this line that become bywords for corruption and judgment, of course, are Sodom and Gomorrah. And we'll see in Genesis 19 how that plays out. So we've seen the descendants of Japheth who dispersed up and out into what is modern day Asia and Europe. We have the descendants of Ham, which went over into now what is Northeast Africa and the West Bank and the surrounding regions there. And and then now we come to Shem, whose dwelling we see was in the the Middle East, what is modern day Saudi Arabia and Iraq. And, And this genealogy, of course, would have been especially precious to the people of Israel because they came from the line of Shem. So remember, Shem, again, is where we get the word Semitic, Shemitic. And here Moses is recounting the names and the places of their early pilgrimage as a people. And right away we see that Eber is of special note because though he's Shem's great-grandson, he's actually listed before Shem's sons, which is interesting. It makes for strange reading, but it tells us he's important. And it, as it turns out, Eber becomes a sort of undercover patriarch because he is the one where we get the name Hebrew. That comes from Eber. That's why it says, oh, now here are all the sons of Eber. Not that he sired all of them, but these were the Hebrews. And the first time we see this is Genesis 14, 13, namely Hebrew being connected to Israel, to the people of God. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, so the son of some Hebrew. So Hebrew becomes the ethnic identity of the Israelites. And this is probably why Moses writes in verse 21 of chapter 10, as I said, that children were born Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, namely the Hebrews. Okay, now obviously many more specific details could be parsed out in this genealogy. There is many fascinating things, rabbit trails we could attend to, but we'll have to leave it there for now. But I do hope that you see how foundational this genealogy is, not just for the world at large, but for the scriptures specifically. These names will appear over and over again throughout the scriptures, and they all trace back to the table of nations here. And now, in conclusion, I I want to end by zooming out on this section generally And connecting a few dots that are very significant, but perhaps a bit concealed in the text. And one point of significance is how many total people or peoples are listed in the table of nations collectively. And we can find that easy by just doing some math. So we have 14 for Japheth, 30 for Ham, so 44, and then 26 for Shem, which makes 70. And we've seen that Moses is 
fond of several numbers up to this point, namely 7 and 10, both pictures of completion and fullness. Well, 70 is 7 times 10, showing the fullness of, of the earth. So 70 is what he's getting at, people are here, because this is a picture of all the peoples and all the tribes and all the nations and all the languages of the world. However, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in contrast to the Hebrew translation, or not translation, the Hebrew of the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the number is rendered 72 because it parses out some of the names a little bit differently. Now, why is that significant? Why does that make a difference? Why is that of interest to us? Well, it's interesting if you turn to Luke 10. Turn to Luke 10. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. It says this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. He's about to go. He's sending them ahead of him to prepare the way. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's the ESV translation. And notice it says he sends out 72. What's interesting is the King James Version says that he sent out 70 to prepare the way. Now, why 72 here and 70 there? Well, it all depends on which you're drawing from, whether it's the Septuagint or the original Hebrew Masoretic text, which shows us this is mapping on top of the table of nations. That's where they're going to reference that number from, which makes the point clear. Just as Jesus originally chose the 12 disciples to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, so here he sends out the 70 or the 72. Why? To show that the salvation that he is about to accomplish is not just an in-house affair for the 12 tribes of Israel, but is in fact for the entire world and all the nations. The tents of Shem are set to expand. And that's exactly what Christ accomplished. So he sent them out ahead of him to make way for him to accomplish what he came to do, which was become the savior of all nations. And he accomplished that 2,000 years ago in time and space. The incarnate Jesus Christ, the God-man, inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth, not just in Jerusalem, but in the whole world. And he did it through dying on the cross where he atoned for the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, not just of native Israel, but of the world. And he did it through his resurrection where he broke the death grip that sin and Satan had on the world. And he did it through his ascension where he cast down the prince of this world, Satan. And he established himself as the Messiah of the world and the rightful heir of all the nations, finally. And in Luke 10, Nathan referenced this during his talk. Jesus is foreshadowing this. When he sends out the 70, we get 
what he says to them on his return. And here's part of what he said. Luke 10, 17, and 18. So the, the 70, or 72, returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Some think that's referring to the original fall of Satan. Not everybody. And I'm one of those who does not think he's talking about that because in context, he had just sent out 70 to prepare the way for his salvation. And he says later, now is the God of this age cast out. And he's saying, you've prepared it. Satan is falling now and vacating the throne. So right now, this world belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king of the world. Now, that does not mean that every person in the world will be saved. There are those who are in rebellion against him. There are Nimrods who have set themselves up as their own God and king in defiance against the true king. But that does not mean that Christ is not king of them or their land. It simply means that they are rebels and trespassers in Emmanuel's land who are currently under his judgment and bidden to repent and be ingrafted into the true kingdom. And here's the unbelievable thing about Christ, our king, the true king. He came, he came to save rebels. We weren't just neutral. He thought this will be easy. We were in rebellion against his lordship and he came to us and he offers terms of peace to those who are completely undeserving. And he offers citizenship to all who call upon his name. And he is a fountain of mercy to all who bend the knee. And when that happens, he doesn't just forgive rebels, but he remakes us and he restores us and he transfers us from the domain of darkness, from the suffocating and sorry world of self-glory as the ultimate end into his kingdom which is the kingdom of light, defined by all that is true and good and glorious. And the way he made that happen was by being crucified on a Roman cross. And in Revelation 21, we get a glimpse, a glimpse into this glorious reality, both of Christ's kingdom expanding across every nation finally, and of it transfiguring the ambition and the efforts of sinners become saints. And it'll be in Revelation 21, one of the most glorious passages in all of Scripture, speaking of the new Jerusalem, which I understand to be the church universal over time and space. Revelation 21, 23 through 26. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light, by the glory of Christ, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring the glory and the honor of the nations. So that's what Christ is accomplishing. 
The salvation of the nations, all who bend the knee, the transfiguration of sinners into saints who can actually now contribute true and eternal glory by the Spirit to the kingdom of God. And so in light of this, I want to end with one encouragement and one exhortation. The encouragement is, Christ is king, and he's a good king, and his kingdom will expand without end. So be filled with hope, be filled with expectation as you set your hand to the plow, work and witness and worship with great faith, knowing that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, and he can't be resisted for long. As the beloved hymn says, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. However, he doesn't establish his kingdom like the D-Day invasion. One quick thrust. His kingdom expands as 10 million mustard seeds of faithful churches live like Christians on purpose in their time and place. And so let's do it. Let's push the kingdom out another inch this week. Now here's my exhortation. Remember what our Lord told those 70 after they came back. I'm sorry, not after, before he sent them. Luke 10:2. he said to them, the harvest is plentiful. So there's pickings everywhere for redemption and salvation, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so my exhortation is let's heed our Lord's command. Let us pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would make us faithful laborers. Let's wake up in the morning praying, Lord, there's a harvest waiting to be reaped today a harvest of increased holiness in my life, increased faithfulness in my family's life, a harvest of unconverted souls that are waiting for me to bear witness because that will be the means by which they are converted. There is a harvest, but we can't do it, but you can, and so we call upon you to do it. Let's wake up and pray like that. Let's wake up thinking in terms of Acts 18, 9 and 10. And I love this text. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. That's an amazing thought. There are many in our city who are Christ's. They just don't know it yet. And how is God going to accomplish their salvation? Through our witness, not just with our work, but with our words. So often, I think, we keep from speaking out of just straight-up fear or cowardice or because we think we can't articulate it well enough. There is no way you can articulate the gospel clear enough to open somebody's eyes. That is the miracle of the Holy Spirit. So we just bear faithful witness to Jesus Christ his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, that he is king, and he has offered terms of peace by his blood. Our Lord and our God, we come humbly and we come with joy to be numbered amongst the redeemed. 
Oh, Lord, we thank you that you called our name, you opened our ears, and you drew us to yourself. And, Father, I pray, Lord of the harvest, we pray that you would be pleased to reap a great harvest in this time where people are so desperate for sanity and for truth. And they don't know it yet. They're under a dark enchantment. May the words of our mouth testifying to Christ break many dark enchantments and cause many needs to bend to the glory of Christ. And now we would pray the way our Lord taught us to pray. Thank you.